IS clearly did not achieve what it set out to achieve. The initial jubilation online, you could see it gradually dissipating and being replaced by pray for the members, pray for these people who are now besieged, you know. So clearly this didn't end up as the group wanted it to end. Hi, I'm Anna Krane. I'm a senior research analyst at Tech Against Terrorism, an organization that supports the global tech sector to tackle terrorist and violent extremist use of the internet whilst respecting human rights. Welcome to another episode of our podcast. This week's episode takes us to Al-Hasaka in northeastern Syria. It's where the Islamic State, or IS, launched a large-scale attack on the Roeran prison on Thursday the 20th of January 2022. Their goal? To try to free IS fighters from the makeshift prison which held 3,000 IS detainees, imprisoned following the group's territorial defeat in 2019. In this episode, I'm joined by Mina Alami, who heads up the jihadist media team at BBC Monitoring and has spent 15 years tracking and analysing jihadist activity online. We also speak to Vera Miranova, who's a renowned conflict journalist and author, who's reported from the front line of the fight against the Islamic State. We'll also hear from Diva Shadnia, who's an open source intelligence analyst at Tech Against Terrorism. With the help of our expert guests, we'll be exploring how exactly the attack on the Roeran prison played out, the online reaction from IS supporter networks, and whether the operation can be considered a propaganda victory for IS. We start by looking at how IS made their way into a heavily guarded prison. As Mina explains, the attack did come as a surprise, even for experts who monitor IS activities. The attack took place in a province, which is Hasaka in northeastern Syria, where IS has very limited support, if any at all. It is controlled by the Kurdish-led Syrian Democratic Forces, which are also supported by the US-led coalition. It also happened you know, against a target, Ruayran prison, that is heavily guarded by the SDF with the support of the US. So it did come as a surprise. And the way IS at least explained it is that it was a multi-pronged, complicated attack from various areas. IS talked in detail about how it unfolded. So they said they sent two suicide bombers to target their guards at the gate. And this paved the way for what they called which means kind of like, you know, commando attackers to go in. IS said 12 commando attackers took part in the operation. They went in, but they also explained, IS also explained that there were other jihadist units in various areas around the prison, within the Rueyran neighborhood itself, but also it said that it had some units that were ready to block any supply routes or, you know, the lines that lead to Rueyran. So it was quite a complicated attack for IS to pull off. Despite the attack coming as somewhat of a surprise, Vera says she believes it happened years in the planning. In terms of the prison break, so it was coordinated by inmates with outside world, basically, by phones long before it happened. So we first detected uh, them calling outside years ago, I think. And they were in contact with a woman in alcohol camps, with their brothers in arms in desert and in Iraq. Yeah, so it was like not surprising in that sense. So the question is where they got the phones from, which we technically also know the answer because the guards gave it to them. The days that followed the initial assault saw intense fighting between IS fighters who had seized control of parts of the prison and the Kurdish-led Syrian Democratic Forces, or SDF, as they tried to take back control of the prison. Western intelligence suggests the SDF were able to kill or recapture hundreds of jihadists who managed to escape. 
Meanwhile, IS claimed in a video on the 22nd of January that hundreds of its members who escaped had reached safety, although that is contested. After 10 days of fighting, on the 30th of January, the SDF regained full control of the prison and the surrounding neighbourhoods. But how did the prison break play out among IS networks online? I'm going to let Mina explain. This was really a golden opportunity for IS supporters, for IS propaganda in general. This is especially that the group prior to that hadn't managed to carry out any you know, significant attacks in Syria for a long time. In fact, in 2021, IS attacks in Syria significantly dropped compared to previous years. In addition to that, None of the attacks that it carried out in 2021 were really remarkable. They were mostly low-profile attacks. So you can imagine that this was received as a big victory for the group. And it also came as a relief for its supporters because the group had been talking about prisoners and you know, um, freeing the prisoners for such a long time, but really hasn't done anything about that. So the supporters online didn't waste time. They immediately organized themselves, mobilized the other sympathizers online, and produced a big amount of content. A lot of it were posters, but they also included videos. And what they did is that they took advantage of, they used the official footage that IS was releasing from the prison. So this campaign online was happening while the attack was underway. So IS, you know, the raid started on the 20th of January, but it lasted almost a week where the militants were entrenched in the prison. So as the militants were inside the prison, they were sending out footage, videos, small clips of their activities, the attacks, the hostages they had taken, but also all the, you know, the the slogans they were making, the vows to not leave, either be martyred, as they say, or leave the prison freely. So the supporters repackaged those official videos and they used them and they produced their own content to echo and amplify the IS message. The other thing they did was that they organized themselves through designated hashtags. So they didn't want the effort, all the posts online, to be scattered through various posts and hashtags. So a number of high-profile pro-IS media groups put out announcements saying all supporters must post under these two designated hashtags. And the hashtags were, the first was called Hedmel Aswar, which means breaking down the prison walls. And this is a long-standing IS battle cry or slogan on the subject of prison breaks. The other slogan was inspired by the prison attack itself. So it was called the Epic Battle of Ruairan, and Ruairan being the prison that IS attacked. So these were to the, the two designated hashtags. But supporters also used a wide range of other hashtags that were kind of inspired from previous IS calls and messaging on prison breaks. So all of these um, hashtags together and the efforts resulted in a really strong online campaign by supporters, not only on Telegram, the messaging app Telegram, where IS and many jihadists are very active, but it crossed over to popular platforms like Twitter and Facebook, where the supporters use these hashtags. At the time, we saw a significant upswell of online content relating to IS, with supporters widely praising the operation as a great victory for the group. And as Mina explains, it's likely the online campaign surrounding the prison break was well-coordinated. 
on the surface, publicly, IS doesn't seem to have a hand in them. They're, they're supposed to be kind of organic support for IS. And I think that's the way the group wants to portray it is that, you know, we have nothing to do with this. These people love us and they're, they'll do anything to support us. But you can see from the level for certain, you know, campaigns, from the level of coordination, from the hashtags, again, supporters are quite disciplined. IS supporters are quite disciplined. They don't normally venture to do certain things or say certain things unless some media operatives have some links with IS and they've been given the green light. So how similar was this online campaign to others we've previously seen from the Islamic State? Mina says there was one subtle difference that she noticed during her analysis. So usually there would be, you know, similarly in big events or big messages, big campaign from supporters to echo the IS message to kind of to promote it. This time we saw supporters also trying to help the group on the ground. So we saw a number of media groups, as well as key IS supporters online, trying to organize others. So one of the things that they did is, for example, they put out posters addressed to the tribes in Hasaka, to the Kurdish and Arab tribes in Hasaka, saying that, you know, if you do not put pressure on the SDF to meet the IS demands. Now, at that point, mind you, IS was in negotiations with the SDF, and this was known. So this was in the media that IS was negotiating. Its militants were now besieged in the prison. So the supporters tried to help IS to um, improve its, its, its hand in the negotiation by threatening the tribes and saying, put pressure, get the SDF to agree to the IS demands, or else your sons, and they were referring to the hostages held by IS, will end up being killed. And they put out a lot of very graphic, violent videos and images from past IS beheadings and executions to drive that message. So they were saying, this is how they will end. The other tactics they used was to urge locals, IS sympathizers in eastern and northeastern Syria to use the hotline that the SDF provided for people to call if they saw IS escapees um, or, you know, inmates who had left, you know, escaped the prison. There was a hotline that the SDF put out um, through WhatsApp urging people to call and give them tip-offs. So IS supporters had actually flood this hotline with fake information, with misleading information to distract the SDF and to really waste their efforts. They also urged the sympathizers in Hasaka as well as in neighboring provinces of Raqqa and Deir Zor to do whatever they can, again, to really stretch and waste the efforts of the SDF as well as block their way. So they were saying, carry out, even if it's small attacks, carry out small attacks just to distract the SDF and ease the pressure on IS militants in uh, Rwayran prison. So I think it was kind of a rare moment when we saw the supporters not only offering that online support, but actually trying to help the group on the ground. I want to bring in Diba from Tech Against Terrorism. She says, when we're considering whether the online response to this assault was typical for IS, you've got to consider two things, both official and unofficial IS networks. So from the official IS online entities aspect, and when we talk about official IS, it's really the it's the news outlets. It's AMAC News Agency, which essentially is the is the first platform to disseminate claims of attacks, usually in a fairly kind of timely manner. And for an attack of this significance, of this scale, it was fairly typical in that the, the news agency first uh, disseminated a text-based claim, effectively outlining on the 20th of January that militants had attacked the prison. 
And then in the hours and days that followed, we saw a kind of increase in the detailed claims of attack that came out. There were at least two to three additional supplemented detailed notes on exactly the kind of points that Mina touched on. So um, the initial suspected uh, or claimed uh, suicide attackers that first um, kind of breached the prison, followed by the kind of small arm fires engagement with the SDF fighters and a whole other host of um, tactical details. Uh, it's important to note, though, that, you know, of course, these are propaganda entities. And so the claims are on the whole, you know, can be treated with a degree of suspicion. The claims that dozens of SDF fighters were killed is, is, um, uh, is you know, to be contested. So in that regard, official responses to the attack from online entities affiliated with IS uh, officially did behave fairly typically. There were also um, propaganda videos that were being shared by official news outlets that detailed on-the-ground operations as well as inside the prison itself. Tech Against Terrorism identified uh, at least six of these videos in the days that, that followed the initial attack on the 20th of January. And from our, from our tracking of where these videos were being shared, we identified 90 unique URLs relating to a number of different online platforms across both mainstream and niche social media uh, and website spaces as well. So again, in this in this capacity, the official response to the attack was typical in that it followed the same formulaic um, structure of how IS officially disseminates claims of responsibility online. However, again, because of the significance of the attack, because of the um, the the role that it plays in the wider group's propaganda apparatus, there was a significant effort to really emphasize the significance of the of the attack and the role that it plays in IS's general activities as well. Looking at the unofficial elements of the response, again, we can say that it was fairly typical in that, you know, supporters responded to the initial claims of the attack with an immediate upswelling of amplification as well as original content as well. And when we say original content, this will be unofficial pro-IS content being shared by not only the kind of um, unofficial news agencies that, that Mina touched on earlier, but also much smaller, much more niche, seemingly sporadic networked entities across a whole host of different online spaces that would create their own posters, would create their own text-based support and praise for the group as well. Um, one thing that, that our team noticed in our monitoring of the um, unofficial responses to the attack was also an increase in the number of pro-IS channels that were created, really, in the days that followed. When we look at a platform such as um, Hoop Messenger, for example, which is continuously exploited by uh, supporters of the Islamic State, we saw in the days that followed the attack, there was a upswelling of the number of affiliated channels that were created. It's not necessarily unusual for IS supporters to, you know, create new entities on accounts of content moderators routinely deplatforming channels and entities. However, the kind of degree to which there was a, you know, huge jump in the number of these channels that were active, I think was indicative of the general emboldening that a lot of the supporters would have felt after this attack. It wasn't just that 
the volume of pro-IS content increased significantly, but you know, it was also the way that they were disseminating it also changed slightly. This isn't the first time Islamic State has attempted a prison break. The last was in Derek in Turkey in 2019. And it's fair to say this is not an unfamiliar tactic for IS. As Mina explains, in some respects, January's battle was reminiscent of early IS operations around 2013. Prison brace really is kind of IS's thing in terms of the messaging. And, you know, for years, I mean, this predates uh, the Rouayram prison, predates its so-called caliphate um, project. For years, even before the caliphate, IS claimed that the prison, you know, rescuing its prisoners, making sure that they escape is one of its top priorities. And one of the key moments in IS's kind of, you know, messaging and narratives really came in 2013. So let's go back a year before that. Twenty In July 2012, IS, under its former leader al-Baghdadi, um, who was also the leader of IS before it declared its caliphate, launched a big campaign in Iraq, where it was based, called Hedmel Aswar, or Breaking Down the Prison Walls. That operation concluded a year later with IS raiding two big key prisons in Iraq, in Abu Ghraib and Taji, and freeing hundreds of prisoners. Now, a number of these jihadist prisoners would go on to play leading roles in IS, and they would go on to become the key officials in the caliphate, the so-called caliphate it would declare a year later. And so that was always, IS is, you know, kind of always evoked this, you know, Hedmel Aswar, we did this in Iraq. They've been trying to replicate that kind of the glory of their attack, the so-called glory of their attack in Iraq. They've been trying to replicate that. And, you know, and, and the thing is, I mean, for IS in Syria, the subject of prison is a very thorny one. And it's actually a source of embarrassment and shame for IS. The reason being this. So with the final IS stronghold in Syria, which was Baruz, when IS lost that, you know, small pocket of resistance in Syria in, in March 2019, those who weren't killed ended up in prisons and detention camps in Hasaka, controlled by the SDF. Now, IS, of course, out of embarrassment at the time, really didn't say anything. So there was a big leadership message, actually, the one where al-Baghdadi himself appeared in the video in April, where the group seemed so embarrassed about all the women and families and children and the members who ended up in prison, and they, IS couldn't do anything about it, that they just completely ignored the subject. So they talked about all the successes here. They talked about Africa and they just completely ignored the prison. There was a major backlash within the jihadist community against IS, against al-Baghdadi specifically. Al-Qaeda supporters, now al-Qaeda is a staunch rival of IS, said, you know, how could you, this is a big stain on IS's honor, how could it leave its women and children to be imprisoned by what they called the, um, the infidels, the SDF? You abandoned them. You brought them in, into this situation in Baruz, and then you fled and you abandoned your women and children, especially, I mean, the subject of women was seen as a stain in the honor of IS. You left women to be, as, as jihadists would say, raped and imprisoned and humiliated. IS learned its message. So in all the subsequent leadership messages under al-Baghdadi and under the, the following leader, al-Qurashi, Abu Ibrahim, they made sure to actually highlight the significance of prison breaks. So IS, in all the subsequent leadership messages, would say prison breaks are a priority. They would address their militants worldwide and they would say, this is, you have to focus on the prisons. Everything else is secondary. So they've been saying that, however, until the Rouayran prison, this was really just words. 
when it, when it comes to Syria. They had two big campaigns, for example, last year called We Have Not Forgotten You. And that was an IS leadership message to the prisoners. We have not forgotten you. And yet they still remain kind of, you know, words on paper. IS claimed over the years to have targeted um, SDF members in the name of prisoners. They have claimed to have fired rockets at an SDF base, again, to avenge the women, the female prisoners. But these were very low-profile attacks. And until the Rouedan prison, IS hadn't managed to do anything uh, on the subject of prisoners in Syria. And we said in uh, BBC Monitoring, in, in a recent analysis, actually in January, we said IS attacks in Syria have largely fallen and its activities have fallen in Syria. However, we noted that just the mere presence of these prisons, of these detention camps in Hol and Roj, the mere presence will always be a magnet and will always invite some kind of big action from IS because the group wants to be seen, at least seen to be doing something about them. And the Rouedan prison does suggest, of course, there was a lot of planning that went into it. Surely the group spent a lot of time trying to orchestrate this. And as IS said, it was an operation that not only came from outside, but there was coordination from inside with prisoners who also had certain roles to play once the suicide bombers kind of, you know, breached that gate. And, and the other thing to say on that is that IS, for example, last year gave a lot of details about what it does that people don't know on the subject of prisons. And that seemed to have been prompted by its envy of the Taliban. So, okay, so IS and the Taliban are staunch rivals. When the Taliban in 2020 managed to secure the release of hundreds, maybe if not actually thousands of its members through a political deal with the US, you know, based on the, 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 the peace deal with the US, the Taliban managed to free a lot of its prisoners, including really top high profile officials. This was widely cheered within the broader jihadist community, apart from IS, of course. IS was absolutely gutted. And immediately in a neba after that, it talked about how the Taliban were, you know, were striking deals with the enemy, how they had to beg and how they had to give really serious concessions to get its members out. The truth is that deal the Taliban did showed the group, at least in the eyes of the jihadist community, that a group that will do everything it can to free its members. So the Taliban is a group that does not abandon its members. IS up till then hadn't really done much, anything really on the subject of prisoners, but talk. So this has really been kind of really playing on IS's mind. It's one of the key aspects that IS's jihadist rivals use to shame and undermine the group when it comes to the prisoners in Syria. So it really wanted to do something big to kind of restore its reputation as being a group that fights for its members. So to what extent was the Rouhran prison attack a propaganda victory for IS? Let's hear from Vera Miranova again. Yeah, it's a total propaganda victory. Absolutely. It increased the moral tremendously. So after, let, let's take that whole camp as an example. So uh, before it happened, some people were already kind of, yeah, maybe, you know, ISIS is so down that we shouldn't bother with it anymore. Not that they didn't believe in it, but they were like, yeah, it kind of sucks now. But it's not the case anymore. So everyone is right now pro-ISIS, and those who were hardcore against ISIS in the camp, there's still those, uh, to be honest, there are like 10 of them, like very small number. But they're very loud being anti-ISIS, and um, they went in hiding uh, when that happened, basically. So it's total propaganda, and plus we need to make sure, uh, like we 
um, understand another internal dynamics that um, ISIS Syria was losing to ISIS Afghanistan. So again, if we're talking about that whole camp, there were already women from Central Asia, let's say, who were giving bayah to the leader of ISIS Afghanistan. And in that sense, that increased, really increased their like allegiance to ISIS Syria. So we should not forget about like internal like, kind of propaganda between uh, war between uh, Afghanistan and Syria. Mina says in the days and weeks that followed the attack, IS certainly spun it as a propaganda victory. Of course, I mean, IS will use anything and it will spin any operation in any way, even when it fails, even when that operation fails. And I think the, the prison break at the end did fail largely. I mean, it, IS clearly did not achieve what it set out to achieve. It knows that. Its supporters also know it. And even as Deba was saying, you know, the the initial jubilation online, you could see it gradually dissipating and being replaced by urges for prayers or pray for the group, you know, pray for the members, pray for these people who are now besieged. Um, even um, one of the Amok videos, the last one that came out from the prison, you can see the militants saying, oh, yes, you know, we're, they're firing some, you know, firing at the um, SDF. But you can also see from there what they're saying. They're just praying you know, so clearly this didn't end up as the group wanted it to end. They were hoping maybe to have, you know, footage of, you know, a lot of its members who eventually made it out to the other end. They wanted to use it differently, but the members who took part in the attack were killed. It's really questionable. I mean, I said hundreds of, of prisoners escaped, but that was really contradicted by the SDF and the US forces. I guess the victory that IS tried to kind of spin or rely on is really the fact that it pulled off such a big operation. And we have to say the fact that it did pull off such a big operation on a heavily guarded um, prison that is, um, you know, really on enemy territory is still considered, you know, a kind of a wake up call, I would say, for the IS threat. It's not to say, you know, I know there were supports saying, you know, oh, is IS back? IS never, you know, left. IS was, was never away, not in Iraq, not in Syria. We don't even, you know, report a lot of IS activity because it's frequent, it's low profile, but it showed, it just highlighted what IS is capable of doing still. It highlighted the threat that the the presence of these prisons and these detention camps in Syria present. I mean, even for the prisoners inside, we saw a lot of people, you know, so, you know, a lot of the prisoners surrendering. We saw a lot of, you know, people saying, you know, we didn't want this, you know, we had, you know, we didn't want to be kind of so-called rescued because, you know, they probably didn't have a lot of time left or, you know, on their sentences, but also they didn't want to be part of this. But IS still tried to, so if you look at um, the very detailed account, it had in its weekly newspaper and Nebet at the end of the operation. So at the end, IS gave a lot of information. So first, it said, you know, it tried to spin this as a massive victory for the group. It said the whole world was dazzled. They even used hallucin. Everyone was hallucinating. They didn't know what to do with this. They were so surprised. They were caught off guard. They portrayed this in terms of a Hollywood movie that no one could. And they were just amazed that we managed to pull this off. And they mocked what you know the us and others had said before that is was over or that um or that Baruz was the last foothold and they said it just proves that we you know is is not over that we're still a big threat so of course they use that to kind of push that narrative that we are still a big threat that is is not over they said 
Well, at the end, there were negotiations. They said the SDF were forced to negotiate with IS. So they used that because they wanted to say face and not say, oh, we negotiated with the enemy. So they said they were forced to negotiate with us. And when they did negotiate, they said IS managed to impose its demands. They said, we managed to get all our demands, but we won't say what these demands are. So I you know, very conveniently said, we're not going to disclose what these demands are because for security reasons. So they tried to portray it as a victory for IS. So eventually they did try to spin it. As Diva said, they talked and their supporters talked a lot about what they said, the humiliation it brought not only to the SDF, but to the US coalition. So that in itself, IS said that the attack in itself was a victory. So of course it tried to portray it as that, but um, they didn't achieve what they set out to achieve. It's worth saying here, it's not just Islamic State militants who are locked up in makeshift prisons and detention camps in Syria, such as Ghouran prison. They're also home to many women who still play an active role in fundraising their own escape or IS operations. Even more alarming is the number of children of members of IS who've been captured or killed. The UN children's charity UNICEF said around 800 children were thought to be inside Ghouran prison when it was attacked with the SDF claiming the children were being used as human shields by IS militants. The repatriation and reintegration of foreign fighters, women who joined IS, and their children is a complicated and contentious issue. Many governments refuse to bring their citizens home, or if they do, it can be very difficult. This is partly because the camps are located in Syria, and there are legal reasons why Western countries cannot return them. The main reason, however, seems to be a lack of will based on some Western countries viewing them as a threat to security. Vera believes there are three actions governments can take to deal with the many imprisoned women and children. Are they going to live there forever? Probably not. So what are our alternatives? Leave them there, prosecute, you know, like in, in locked up, right? Get them back home, prosecute, leave them in prison. Or get them home, you know, be nice to them, give them welfare and, you know, tell everyone that like, oh my God, they're poor victims, right? And they continue doing what they're doing in from outside. So if we're choosing between those three options, of course, I would go first, get them home, prosecute them. And especially, very importantly, you need to take the custody of kids away from them because ISIS doesn't radicalize kids. Al-Hol does not radicalize kids. Their mothers do. So, you know, their mothers already endangered them bringing them to Syria. Because the worst thing that you could do is to bring them home, let them out, pretend that they're victims. So not only you are like letting them out yourself, but you also move them all over the place where they basically radicalize everyone around it. And we know a lot of cases like that. And a lot of those returned women, poor victims, quote unquote, uh, they are right now very active, like crucially active in fundraising for ISIS, in money transferring and propaganda. Whilst Fira points out that women and children's security concerns should be taken seriously, it is important to consider that some of the people who are trying to return or have returned have disengaged themselves from IS and its ideology. As Mina says, there have been various campaigns to free the women in these prisons. It's difficult to know how authentic they are, but there's a lot of activity about the specifically the women in the whole camp. So on Telegram, you can see a lot of groups, a lot of coordination, a lot of women claiming to be based there and asking for help. There have been a lot of jihadist campaigns 
claiming to want to support these female prisoners. So some of them were fundraising campaigns that were raising funds to smuggle the women, to pay their jailers to let them out. There were a number of women who then had videos and claimed that they were smuggled out through these campaigns. There were other campaigns to incite violence against the SDF in the camps. But there are various campaigns still active online in the name of women in these camps, not necessarily by the women, but saying, oh, let's, you know, let's let's try to help them. Just days after the SDF re-secured the Rueran prison, the Islamic State group made the headlines for a very different reason. Their leader, Abu Ibrahim al-Hashimi al-Qurashi, was killed following a US raid in northern Syria. It's thought that al-Qurashi set off a blast killing himself and his family as special forces surrounded his hideout after a gunfight. At the time of recording this podcast, IS hasn't commented on the death of its leader. But as Mina says, the operation was hinted at in IS's weekly newspaper. They condemned the U.S., they said, for a recent attack it had carried out that they said killed children and women. They seem to be referring to that attack because of the dates that they mentioned. So they seem to be referring to that attack on the 3rd of February. But they just focused on that, that the U.S. carries out airstrikes, it kills you know civilians and no one cares. But it said nothing about the leader. And in terms of their supporters, there has been kind of three ways that they've responded. So the first and the initial, I mean, at first there was a muted response. They kind of, um, they didn't say anything. They didn't know what to do. And the usual response for jihadists in general is not to, is not to believe what they call enemy propaganda, not to believe mainstream, wait for the official. So the, the, the first response was, let us not to listen what to what mainstream media is saying, especially the US, especially Biden. We have to stick to the official line of IS. Let us wait for what IS will say. They're still waiting. So they've been waiting for IS to say something. The second response has been a defiant one. Well, you know, even if he is dead, death of a leader does not spell the death of a group. The cause goes on, jihad goes on. And that is a very common um, argument um, or response that jihadists more largely have that, you know, they, they would cite the Prophet Muhammad, his death, you know, despite his death, the Islam and the message of Islam went on despite his companion's death and so on and so forth. The third response has been that, well, who said Qardash, who the U.S., killed and said, you know, we checked his DNA. It is Qardash. Who said Qardash is Abu Ibrahim al-Qurashi? IS never said it. And that's true, of course. So IS, when it announced the new leader in October 2019, it only gave his um, nom de guerre pseudonym. It said his name is Abu Ibrahim al-Hashimi al-Qurashi. It didn't identify who he is. We had no idea. He's never appeared in any audio message, video message. We don't know who he is. The only information we have about him is not from IS, but from, from the US, from Iraqi intelligence. And they have said that Abu Ibrahim al-Qurashi is actually an Iraqi Turkman named Abdullah Qardash. This is the same person. IS never confirmed that. Its supporters never confirmed that. So the third line of response recently from supporters is that they said, even if Qardash is the guy who 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 was killed? It doesn't mean he is the the caliph, the so-called caliph. Uh, we'll have to wait for IS to confirm that. And this is also an interesting point because there are certain conditions for a caliph to be able to fill that role in certain strict interpretations. So, a he has to be able to trace his family lineage to the Prophet Muhammad's tribe of Quraysh, hence the title. Qurashi. So Qurashi comes from the tribe of Quraysh in Mecca. And so any caliph has to be able to trace his lineage back to um, the Quraysh tribe. 
So one of the one of the contentions was that if he's a Turkmen, then he couldn't be from the tribe of Quraysh. It's a different ethnicity. Um, so that was one of the arguments. And that's why possibly ICE never confirmed that these two men were the same. The other argument, mostly also put from jihadist rivals, is that Qardash, the Iraqi Turkmen, had his right leg amputated in a, in a U.S. airstrike in Mosul. Now, the second condition for a caliph is that he is physically fit, not like sexy and muscly, but physically fit. He doesn't have any, yeah, no physical disability. The fact that this guy had a leg amputated was considered a physical disability, which would not allow him to have the title of caliph. And that was said to be another reason why Ayas never confirmed that Al-Qurashi was Qardash. There are two things that he might not have met in terms of the conditions. So this was the way they re- they responded. So far, I haven't really seen a change from that. We've seen some, you know, a statement and report surface online saying, oh, IS internally has released a statement confirming the death of Qaddash and appointing this guy. I think his, they named him as um, Abu al-Hassan al-Qurashi as his replacement. But this was mostly shared by IS detractors or rivals online. It hasn't been shared by any of the credible voices of IS. So, so far, the official line is that there's been nothing from IS and its supporters are towing that line and saying, we won't say anything, we won't believe in anything until IS says, says so. It's different from the last time when al-Baghdadi was killed it took IS four days to confirm it and to announce a leader. But now, of course, the question is, who is the leader? So maybe they're, they're, they're taking their time to bake that narrative, but also to see who might be the successor. Tech Against Terrorism's Ozan team has been monitoring IS online activity following the apparent death of Al-Qurashi. Diba says IS supporters are very disciplined and are likely to wait for official cues before sharing any confirmation of the death online. We, we kind of saw immediate denials of the claim. We saw supporter um, entities on mainstream social media platforms effectively putting up the photos that were released by um, media reports kind of side by side saying, oh, well, you know, this isn't the same person, first of all, and not to, not to believe um, kind of international media reports or uh, entities affiliated with the US and their allies. So it was the same kind of rhetorics that we would expect from the group when it comes to how IS and its supporter networks grapple with um, incidents that deal a blow to the group. They're extremely adaptable at changing their narratives to be able to um, bypass things that don't serve their cause effectively. Um, one thing that I thought was particularly interesting on um, on a rocket chat server used by IS supporters was, um, you know, an initial comment from a user, the, the caliph has been killed. And then another user kind of correcting them and saying, no, we wait for the official declarations. We wait for the statements. It's kind of like an internal system of uh, moderating uh, supporter narratives as well for the less seasoned IS supporters who kind of don't understand uh, the extent to which they, you know, they have to toe the lines. So in that respect, it was fairly typical for for how both, you know, official IS entities behave after a kind of severe blow to the group. Um, it wasn't unexpected that there wasn't an immediate confirmation of the attack, that there wasn't an immediate, you know, statement that was put out. I think that, um, you know, we are likely to have to wait a little while longer for any kind of clarity about next steps from the group officially. So what is the future for the Islamic State? And how do attacks such as the one on the Ruaran prison play a role in their efforts to recruit? Mina says she believes IS will have a hard time replicating the so-called caliphate appeal it had in 2014, when it convinced thousands of people from around the world to flock to Iraq and Syria to fight, 
At that time, many foreigners were attracted by the slick propaganda videos depicting life in the caliphate. In the videos, you saw a lot of foreigners and you saw their children in school. And the IS tried to sell this idea of the good life under IS. Prosperity, you know, markets stacked with goods and people, children, in, you know, in fairgrounds and on picnics, etc. So, of course, side by side with the violence. It never hid the violence. I mean, you'd have a video showing a fairground and, you know, people enjoying Eid and then you'd have an execution at the end. So you had those early days when IS managed to really kind of fool some people to uh, migrating to its territory. I don't think IS would be able to pull that off again because even the areas that it raided, it occupied and then left, it really just left death and destruction behind it. The people who, you know, may, may have followed the group ended up either dead or in prisons or kind of on the run. So, you know, all its claims of being this invincible group and, you know, the, being the caliphate, it really was, you know, of course, you know, losing all of that was a big knock. So I don't think there is a threat presently of IS being able to go back to that kind of, of control or strength. But certainly events like these, you know, the Hasika prison attack, these are events that would help to bolster the group's image, its efforts to recruit, its online propaganda. Of course, I mean, to do these big propaganda, whether it's a video, whether it's a campaign, you need material, you need some events on the ground that could, you know, feed into these propaganda campaigns and these efforts to recruit. And an attack like this, that does feed into IS's effort to recruit and to promote itself and to threaten and to intimidate. So I think that is the danger, of course, is, you know, um, using for the group to use this. In terms of, you know, is there a threat of IS returning also depends a lot on factors on the ground, the political situation on the ground in Syria and Iraq, any ethnic tensions, sectarian tensions. And when you look at IS propaganda, it's always trying to play on any kind of political crisis or sectarian tensions, you know, trying to kind of, you know, stir Sunnis against the Shias or stir the, 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 the Arabs against the Kurds in, in Syria. So it will always try to exploit anything to use it to its advantage and present itself as the so-called savior and defender of Sunnis. So I think we have to be very careful and watch out for these, you know, the, the wider political context on the ground to see if IS might be able to exploit that to make some gains. I wouldn't say to capture territory and kind of replicate that, but to make some gains. It, it wouldn't be unlikely if it could, you know, if it would raid a village or even kind of a small patch. But, the, 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 you know, the threat is that's how it started last time with, you know, small areas and then it, it, it expanded. So, um, yeah, I, I think that's the thing. And, you know, from the Syria example, just to watch out for those examples when we think IS has kind of really kind of been weakened in a certain area. And then we see that it is able to mobilize and to plan something as big as the Hasaka attack. As Diva says, the IS threat has never gone away. The intent of the group to, to launch attacks on civilians and civ security forces has not diminished. But what is changing and what the attack in Hasaka underlines is that their capabilities are strengthening. And that, I think, points to a potential wider future trend of more developed, more sophisticated attacks that we may be starting to see um, with with this prison attack. And I think what Mina said about understanding the, the kind of local context is super important for, for Iraq and Syria. But I would, I would further that point as well to emphasize that it's not just the relevance of Syria and Iraq, of course, cannot be under, understated. However, 
I also think that there's something for us to be mindful of in terms of socioeconomic factors in neighboring countries in the region that could also help bolster the group's capabilities. There was a news report recently that I think it was 12 IS militants that were killed in Iraq um, had traveled from provinces in northern Lebanon in recent months, uh, most of which were likely, again, according to interviews from their family members, um, which, you know, uh, you know, should be questioned, uh, understandably, but, um, you know, socioeconomic factors in neighboring countries are likely to have an impact on the group's ability to, to mobilize and to attract recruits, especially considering we're coming off the end of a, of a two and a half year pandemic. Economies in the region have been decimated. You know, there is a, there is a significant place where IS is able to draw on these cleavages and these factors in order to bolster their recruitment. And that is something that I think the international community should be mindful of when we talk about the group's ability to resurge in, a, in an even more significant way than they had been doing already. Here at Tech Against Terrorism, we continue to closely monitor IS activity online, where official and unofficial networks are highly active in promoting their offline victories. And we alert this content to tech platforms. A huge thank you to Tech Against Terrorism's Diva Shadnia and to our guests Mina Alami and Vera Miranova for their input in today's episode. To find out more about Tech Against Terrorism and our work, visit techagainstterrorism.org or follow us on Twitter at Tech versus Terrorism, where you can find resources on today's topic. I'm Anna Krane. This is the Tech Against Terrorism podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week for another episode. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.